Everyone everywhere has this desire to be loved. I have seen in pop culture uh, references to uh, this desire for love. It's everywhere. I mean, everywhere. People talking about uh, the desire for love or the faithfulness, this commitment for love, um, the betrayal of love lost. I mean, whether you're talking about uh, Jane Austen or The Princess Bride or um, Hallmark movies or Ed Sheeran songs or Frozen, like, it's everywhere, Right? What, what does it mean to be loved? What, does it, what do we desire? What do we want? And this, this desire that people have for this kind of love. And so this morning, as we're looking in the Scriptures at uh, the book of Matthew in chapter 5, we're going to be talking about this again, about what does it mean that God loves and what does it mean for us in our relationships with others? How do we love? And so if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and uh, today we're going to be focusing on verses 27 to 32, but before we get there, we have to set it up by going back two weeks ago to Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Okay, so let me read Matthew 5, 17 to 20 to you. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, if you recall, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's gone up on a mountain, and he has sat down there, and he is talking with them about what does it mean to be a part of his kingdom? What does it mean to be uh, a part of his people? And here he, he begins to, to talk to them about, look, you have heard all of these things uh, um, from the Old Testament, and the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have been telling you how you ought to live, and I want to tell you that the bar is not yet high enough. You see, I've been accused of neglecting the law, not paying enough attention, not following the law strictly enough, but I want to tell you that we want to raise the bar on what our expectations are for moral behavior for God's people. For I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And nothing will pass from the law until all is accomplished. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so then he takes the next several sections to talk about the ways in which the bar is not yet high enough. And here he starts in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 14, it says, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So when Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, what he's saying is, you recall, you know, in like maybe one of the most important scriptures in all of the, the Bible, 
those ten commandments, those ten laws, ten rules that we say these are the most important uh, laws for how we are to govern ourselves and how we are to behave. You remember those? And you remember how it said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. You see, God from uh, the beginning of time has had a very high view of marriage. At the beginning of the service, we read about uh, how He created them, how He created man and woman in His image. He created them. He created them in His image. They were uh, created to be relational people in committed relationship with one another to reflect the kind of relationship that God has with His people. In fact, in the very act of God giving these Ten Commandments, giving the law to Moses, He makes this covenant with His people on Mount Sinai, and it is, it is as though it were a wedding happening there. God making His covenant with His people and wedding Himself to His people and saying, I am going to behave in this way toward you and I am going to take care of you and I am going to provide for you and I am going to give you a land and you will be my people and I will be your God. And this is how you will act and respond. You will faithfully love me and worship me. He's making this this pact, this covenant with them. He's entering into this relationship with them. And as he's doing that, some of the things that he says is, this is how you will behave. You shall not commit adultery. My people don't do that. My people love faithfully. We have uh, in the church a very high view of marriage. Because of this, because we think, that God has created us for this purpose, that we are uh, in the, the um, act of marriage, in the relationship of marriage, we are uh, demonstrating for other people what God's relationship with them is like. And so we have this very high view of what marriage is. In fact, I, I have seen... Um, that sometimes we get a little bit arrogant about that in the church. And the reason that I say that is because we, we will look at what other people are doing and we'll go, that is not marriage. That's not marriage. We'll, we'll look at the way that people interact with each other and go, that is not right. That is sin. I know that's sin. But lest we find ourselves in a position where we put ourselves in judgment over other people, let's recognize that when we start throwing uh, stones with regard to sexual ethics, we have to be really careful because our, our bar is probably not quite high enough. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. The bar needs to be much, much higher you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And the, the scribes and the Pharisees had been teaching, you shall not commit adultery. Don't do that. But I say to you, Jesus says in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already con- committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, excuse me? What do you mean, Jesus? 
I thought that of the, the, the commandments, this was one of the ones that I might actually be able to do. And then Jesus says, oh, no, no, your bar is not high enough. Can you imagine? Somebody says, the law is don't go into credit card debt. Okay, I can do that. And anyone who looks at an object with desire has already committed credit card debt in their heart. Uh, What? Why, Why is this? Why have you already committed adultery in your heart? You, you, just, you just looked, you just wanted, you just desired. But you know what? This is not something that is unique to Jesus. This is not something that is unique to the church. You start looking at those pop culture references again, and you'll notice that people have this understanding that if it's love, if it's true love, if this is real, it's committed. It's committed. Have you seen that meme? The, like the, the first thing that, that came, comes to my mind is that meme with the guy that's walking and he's holding the hand of somebody and then somebody, some girl is walking this way and he does one of these. And the look on the, the, the hand, the, the, the woman who's holding her, his hand is looking at him with this, this look of disgust. Right? You're holding my hand and you're looking at her. What are you doing? What are you doing? What's wrong with that? So he's holding her hand and looking at the other one. What's wrong with that? Is that a problem? Well, yeah. Yeah, you said you were committed here. And if you're saying that you're committed here, this is an exclusive, faithful relationship. What are you looking over there for? What are you doing? If you're looking over there, that's not committed anymore. Isn't it amazing that everybody thinks that's true? Everybody knows that's true. If I say that I'm committed to this relationship, I shouldn't be looking over there. In fact, that meme is so popular, I see it all the time. Oh, here you are, you're supposed to be a fan of this team, but ooh, I looked at that team, they're doing really well. Well, are you a fan or aren't you a fan? Are you committed or aren't you committed? You unfaithful fan? One more pop culture reference. Olivia Rodrigo has this song, Traitor where she says, you betrayed me, and I know that you'll never feel sorry for the way that I hurt. You'd talk to her when we were together. I loved you at your worst, but that didn't matter. It took you two weeks to go off and date her. I guess you didn't cheat, but you're still a traitor. You're still a traitor. You you didn't actually cheat, but you're still a traitor. You see, whether it's just a look of, oh, I wish I could be with a person who looked like that. Or a look of, I wish I would, could be with a person who knew me like that. Or, 
I wish I could be with a person who treated me like that. It's this looking with the eyes that Jesus says, you can't do that. The eyes say, wouldn't that be nice? And the mind begins to wonder, what if? And the heart begins to long. And then it's just a matter of walking it out. Because it's already happened inside. What do we do about that? How seriously do we take this? How important is it? You see, Jesus has raised the bar like this, and we go, ah, okay, but let's be honest, nobody can meet that, right? And so, it, we'll just, okay, yeah, ideally that would be the case. Ideally, my eyes wouldn't like notice over there and look at that. But how, how important is this really, Jesus? Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus seems to take it pretty seriously. If this is a problem for you, you should probably do something about that. If like your eye is causing you to sin, you've got a wandering eye, then you should probably just like get rid of that. Don't have that be a problem anymore. If your hand is causing you to sin, it would be better if you cut that thing off. You've got this disease in your hand that is going to kill the rest of your body if you let it do what it wants to do, and so cut it off, get rid of it. Whatever it takes to get rid of it, do it. We should take this seriously. Now, I think that he's using this hyperbolic language. I don't think that Jesus is actually wanting us to pluck our eyes out and chop our hands off and maim ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. And then the reason that I think that is because I don't think that it would help. I don't think that it puts an end to it just because we plucked out our eyes and chopped off our hands. It's a heart issue. I think that he's using this hyperbolic language to say whatever it takes to avoid sin, do that. He's not talking so much about the mechanism, but the seriousness with which we should take this issue. We don't necessarily have to do it this way, but we should be vigilant to root it out, to watch for it, and say, let's not do that. If you read through the book of Proverbs, this is all over in the book of Proverbs, especially in, in the, the first half of Proverbs, and especially if you're looking at like verses, uh, chapters 5 through 9. Or you could read just chapters 5 and 6, and it talks about um, wisdom and, and this, desi- this uh, way that the young man should pursue lady wisdom and not lady folly. But there is Lady Folly calling out to him, standing on the corner, looking, looking so seductive, looking so beautiful, calling to him, hey, come, turn aside. You, you young man, you're walking over here. Come, come, come over here. Come over here. 
And it, the way that Proverbs describes it is, is this woman who's just throwing herself at this young man. Come, come over here. My husband's out of town. He's taken a lot of money. He's going to be gone for months. There's no danger that anyone's going to find out about this. And, and I am lonely, and so come. Come with me. And Proverbs warns and warns and warns and warns. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, don't go down that road. Don't look that direction. Don't turn aside. Whatever it takes, avoid that. Don't do it. Don't do it. That is the way to destruction. That is the way to a ruined life. Avoid it. Stay away from it. Back off. Why? Because hell hangs in the balance. Because as we turn away and we start pursuing, desiring these seductive things, it leads us away from God. It leads us away from Him and His covenant love. And we start to desire and pursue other things and turn away from him and go, I'm going this way instead. Wouldn't it be nice over here instead? Last week we talked about how anger can cause us to do things that we regret or don't really want to do, but when we rise up in anger, then we do those things and lust has that same, um, that same ability to influence us. We may not recognize it in quite the same way, but that passion, that lust rises up inside of us and then we desire this thing and we pursue that thing and it just leads us into this destructive place. And Jesus is saying, we got to be so, so careful of this. So careful. I want to just pause for a moment and say that when Jesus is saying these things, he's saying them to you. He's not saying them to you for someone else. He's saying them to you. So when we're reading these words, one of the things that I I think that sometimes my temptation is, is to go, hey, uh, you've got this sin problem. Let me chop off your hand for you. Let me pluck out your eye because you've got this sin issue. And Jesus is saying, you've got the sin issue, Travis. You've got to deal with it. You've got to take it seriously. You let me worry about them. My word will speak to them as well. My Holy Spirit can convict them as well. Eyes locked on me. I think that we so see this as an issue, so see this as a problem that we want to deflect it. And we want to say, it's a bigger problem for them, though. It's a bigger problem for them. And so when somebody says, oh, hey, you shall not commit adultery, we go, oh, yeah, they definitely shouldn't. They definitely shouldn't. And you know what's adultery? That's adultery, and that's adultery, and that's adultery, and that's adultery, and that's adultery. And Jesus says, and the lustful intent of your heart. 
you too. When you look, when you long, when you desire that which is not yours, when you are not faithful, when you give one of these, So what do we do? We model what it looks like to have a faithful love and we implore other people that they can do the same. But what if, what if, what if I married wrong? Or they might have thought, okay, I understand. I shouldn't commit adultery, and so uh, what I should do is so that it's not adultery, I should just divorce this one and marry that one. And then it's not adultery. This one ended, this one began. Yay for me. And Jesus goes, uh, no, time out, no. It was also said, he says in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now, in, in Deuteronomy 24, uh, he get, Moses is giving the law to the people, and he's helping them to understand um, what the parameters and what relationships are supposed to be like. And, and he explains that uh, if somebody is... Um, if somebody is married and they, they issue this decree of divorce, this is how they should do it. If, if a, a man hates his wife and he can issue her this decree of divorce and then they are divorced. And the reason for doing that is because in this uh, culture, in this time, the woman had no, no uh, autonomy. And so if the, the, the man didn't like her and just left her, then she was stuck. She couldn't take care of herself. She couldn't provide for herself. She was just stuck. And so this was a way of freeing her from the obligation because otherwise what could happen is that a man could leave his wife but not divorce her and she could be legally obligated to him even though he had abandoned her for somebody else or for something else. And so this decree of divorce, this writ of divorce was issued so that she could be set free from the relationship, from the, the, um, the covenant. And he says, so then this idea is, okay, well then, if that's the case, then what I could do is I could just issue a decree of, of divorce, and I could divorce this person and move on to somebody else that might make me happier. And in fact, this is something that our culture has, has um, highlighted as being something that you should probably do. I mean, because after all, marriage is all about your happiness, and if you're not happy in marriage, then what you should do is get out of that marriage and find one that will make you happy. Find a marriage somewhere that will fulfill you. If this one isn't it, if they're not treating you right, if it doesn't seem right, if it just isn't right, then go ahead and get out of that one and move on to something else. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Now, I don't often dive into the Greek on things um, because I, 
I think that most of the time the sense comes through clearly in, in the English, but this is a tricky this is a tricky phrase to translate. Because and the, the way that they've rendered it, so so literally it's um, anyone who divorces his wife makes her adulteried. It it makes her adulteried. And and so what the the, what the translators have done is they have um, put this into the, um, the active voice so that if he divorces her, then it causes her then to commit adultery. But I, I think what's actually happening here is, is that this is a passive voice. That is, when he divorces her and moves on to someone else, she is the victim of adultery. She, he has made her to be adulteried. He's the one who is committing adultery here, not that she is therefore forced to commit adultery because he has divorced her, but in his divorcing her, she has become the victim of adultery, which gives it a little bit different flavor, which is why I dive into that here. Because I think that this, what he's saying is you can't just see something over here, issue this decree of divorce, and move on and think that that's okay. That is an act of, an adult, of adultery. Issuing somebody a, a writ of divorce so that you can move it into a different direction and go somewhere else. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now here, I, I think we have the other side. If, if a woman secures a divorce for herself and a man marries her, he's committing adultery. Now, this is the way that I see it in my head, right? That she's married here, sees him, and he's sort of waiting over here with open arms. But she's married, and so we're just standing here in the wings. But then she gets the divorce, and now she's free, and so, boom, embrace. And he said, no, 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 no. Both ways, you can't do this. You can't just issue a divorce or secure a divorce for yourself, somehow make yourself unfavorable to your husband so that he divorces you so that you can go over here to this other one instead. We can't do that. Either way, this is adultery. And he's, he's raising the bar because just in, as the culture in our day and the culture in that day, that was perfectly acceptable. We can do that. That's fine. Marriages are convenient. They're helpful. They're important relationships. They can be uh, economically prudent. But if that's not what we want, then let's move on from that onto, into something different. And he's going to know, let's raise the bar. So you can't, you can't lust after something else. You can't leave one for another. You can't do these things. These are all adulteries. He's raising the bar. And this isn't the first time that we have heard this from God. It's not like Jesus is pulling this out of a vacuum. In Malachi chapter 2, um, God has two accusations against his people, and I want to read the first one and then have you read the second one with me. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, it says, 
Uh, Have we not all one Father, and has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So the first accusation that he has against them is they have been unfaithful to the covenant with God. They have been unfaithful to God by turning aside and going after other gods. Then, second accusation, verse 13 of Malachi chapter 2. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groanings, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The two accusations, one, you have not been faithful to the covenant with God, and two, you haven't been faithful to the covenant with your spouse. And so then why are you weeping before the Lord with your offerings at the altar as though he's not receiving you, as though he's not accepting you, when you have been totally faithless? And when we raise the bar this high... And when we say that, love, uh, that lust is adultery of the heart and it causes us to be faithless, or we are faithless in that act, then we all just find ourselves going, I guess it's hopeless. I guess it's hopeless. We have been faithless to the covenant. We have been faithless to the covenant. We have been faithless to God. What is there left? And in Jeremiah 31, God tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Are you looking for a steadfast, faithful, committed love? Are you looking for someone to accept you as you are? To love you as you are, to accept you as you are, to look over your faults. This is what Jesus offers us. 
He says, I had my covenant with my people and they broke it. They were faithless. I issued them a a writ of divorce because of their unfaithfulness. And I'm making a new covenant. I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for their sins. I am going to cleanse them of their sin and make them pure and holy before me. And I am going to bring them into a committed relationship with me. And I will be faithful and I will never leave them. I will never forsake them. I will never abandon them. I will provide for them. I will care for them. I will nourish them. And they will know me. They will know me in a deep and intimate way. I will reveal myself to them so that they may know me. And I have already known them. You want somebody who knows you so deeply? Who understands your intent? Who understands without even fully communicating or saying the words the way that you want to say them? Even if you say nothing at all, he understands and knows you. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows everything about you. And right when we might say, that makes me feel so vulnerable because look at all the other stuff. Like, I really want him to know my intentions and my desires and my loves and my passions. I really want that, but I don't really want them to know about all this darkness over here. And he says, no, I know about all that too, and I'm going to take care of that. I'm just going to take care of all of that. He knows you so deeply, so intimately, so well, and yet embraces you fully. And is completely committed. This is the love that Jesus offers us. And this is why we have such a high view of marriage. Because we feel that marriage, even the, the, in its brokenness, somehow displays this kind of relationship. The sacrificial love, the, the um, grace and mercy that's offered within that relationship. The faithfulness that's there. And when it's broken, the way that that there can still be grace and compassion in that and restoration in that, just like our Heavenly Father sees us in our brokenness and yet says, I can restore you to relationship with myself. And so our view is so high and our desire for Jesus is so deep that may we be faithful to Him as He has been faithful to us and may we be faithful to our spouses May we not be faithless in any area. Have you been unfaithful to Jesus? Have you found yourself to be unfaithful? Then just come to him and lay it down and say, God, I confess this. And I ask that you would cleanse me. And what we see is that Jesus has already done the work to make us clean. And someday he will return, and when he returns, it will be as a husband returning to his bride who has been made perfect for him. And we will enter into this eternal relationship with him that has already now begun, but then will be perfected from that point until forevermore. So that all of the Hallmark movies, all of the Jane Austens, all of the cheesy stuff that you go, oh, wouldn't that be lovely, does not compare to the reality of the love of God for you. And so, yeah, we take it seriously. We take it seriously because we know 
how great our God is and how great his commitment to us. And so let us ask him together that we would keep our eyes fixed on him and we too would be found faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, we are a fickle people. We are easily distracted and led astray. We are easily tempted. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us. That you would not lead us into temptation, but that you would deliver us from the evil one. Father, where we misstep, where we turn away, where we are faithless, we pray that you would forgive us, that we might be restored. And Lord, there are many relationships reflected in this room. Some of them are beautiful and gorgeous and, and Lord, they, they honor and delight you and some of them, Father, are broken and hurting. And our desire, Lord, is that you would restore, redeem, reconcile, Father, that even in our human relationships, we might um, testify to your greatness. Lord, there are some relationships that are going to require a miraculous work. Because while one person in the relationship wants this, the other one does not. And so, Father, we pray for a miraculous work of your Spirit. And we pray that even in that brokenness, where one is committed and one is not, that the one who is committed would display the kind of love that you display toward us. That even in the brokenness, it might be a testament to your grace and mercy and unconditional favor. And Father, for those who uh, are in this place and um, who are reeling and hurting from uh, past brokenness and past sins, Father, we pray for reconciliation and restoration. We pray that what has been broken might be made new and might be made beautiful in your sight. And Father, even more than the relationships that we have with one another, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to you and lean in hard on you. And we thank you for being uh, the perfect uh, spouse to us, the one who loves and, and cares for us deeply. And we praise you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.